You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Turn to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42, we're going to continue to look at the life of Joseph. Before, uh, before we get started, I want to share with you a prayer request. Um, good, good friend of mine, uh, my neighbor, pastor of uh, Shady Grove Baptist Church down on uh, Martin Luther King Drive. Uh, passed away Friday morning at 47 years old. And the church is meeting this morning, and I, I can imagine that they're having a hard time. I went to visit him a couple of weeks ago, and I, I really thought, I really thought he was going to pull out. I really thought we were going to get to see a miracle. But God, in His sovereignty and in His providence that we've been learning about over the last few weeks, Took him home. And uh, they've been my neighbor for about a year and a half. And man, we got close to this family. He leaves behind a, a teenage daughter, senior in high school. Her name's Jordan. His wife, Lucretia, is just absolutely brokenhearted. And I uh, got to spend a lot of time with this man, you know, mowing yards and crossing the, crossing the ditch between mine and his house and talking a lot. I, I got to share one story about, about him. Uh, of course, his name is Tyrone Bird. Uh, I, I just called him Pastor Bird, or sometimes just Bird. And uh, for whatever reason, he he picked my name uh, to be Jefferson. <laughs> and I'm gonna miss being out in the yard and hearing him go Jefferson, <laughs> right in the middle of Hurricane Florence. I'm talking when it's raining. I mean, cats and dogs, buckets of water. My family had. They went to Wilkes, so I was in the house by myself. I think his family left for a little while and then came back. But I walk out on the back porch, and I mean, it's just just torrential downpour. And all of a sudden, I catch a smell in the air. And the thought runs through my mind, what nut would be grilling <laughs> in the middle of a hurricane? I looked to my right, and, and the bird had a got an outbuilding there, a storage building. And on the front of that storage building, it's got an overhang, kind of like a little porch area there. And that's where he would always sit, hang out over there. I look over there, and he's got the smoke rolling on that charcoal grill. I look at him, and he did that. So I put my rubber boots on. I sloshed over there. I said, Bird, what in the world are you doing? He said, well, Jefferson, <laughs> He said, there ain't no reason why two men ought to starve to death in a hurricane. Because <laughs> he knew my wife wasn't at home. And I said, well, I, I agree with that. I'll, uh, I'll go along with that. He said, let, let me show you what I got. He said, man, you're going to eat good today. He raised He got a big charcoal grill. I mean, one of those big manly grills, right? He raised his lid on that thing. And there has got to be no less than about 30, 36 pig's feet. I'm hoping for ribeyes, right? I'm down with some ribeyes. <laughs> he's grinning from ear to ear. 
He said, now look at here, Jefferson. He said, now, now look, you and I are going to eat good here in the back. He said, give me about an hour. We're going to eat good. I said, well, murder's a problem. He said, well, what's that? I said, I know where those feet have been. <laughs> he said, you mean you don't eat pig's feet? And I said, no, sir. No, sir. I'll, I'll eat a whole lot of the pig, but that's one part I'm not eating. And he said, well, what am I going to do? I said, you're going to eat pretty well through the rest of this hurricane is what you're going to do. I gave him a hug. And I went back to my house. And that was our relationship. I'm going to miss that man. And I know that church over there is going to miss that man because he's been serving faithfully over there, I think, for 19 years, I think it is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I don't always understand what you're up to. As a matter of fact, a lot of the times I don't understand. The reality is, is it's not up to me to understand. <laughs> your, highs are, your ways are higher than mine. They're mysterious at times. And Father, I, I, don't, I don't really understand other than the fact that we live in a broken, fallen world where people get sick and, and they pass far too early. I don't really have a clear understanding as to why a wife and daughter are suffering the way that they are this morning. I don't understand why a church that has been faithfully serving in a very hard part of our community is missing a pastor this morning. I, I, don't, I don't understand all that. But what I do understand is that you are sovereignly in control. And what I do understand is that you're perfect and holy. And what I do understand, Father, is that your purposes and your ways are so far higher than mine that I can't even begin to wrap my arms around it. And I also recognize that I'll, I'll see my friend again in a new place with no hurricanes and no kidney failure. We'll never be separated again. So, uh, Father, I know your servant served well, and I uh, know that you're going to bless and move and heal because you always do. So, Father, we trust you. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. and. Well, I just thank you for the short time that I got to know this man and for the encouragement he was to me. Father, I pray that you would guide us in your word this morning as we continue to see your providence and your sovereignty. And Father, that there's another way that you're working in our lives. And Father, we desperately, desperately need to see that and respond to it correctly. So guide us in your word this morning, I pray. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You probably noticed that uh, the sun's getting a little low in the sky, and it's getting a little cooler out, and the shadows are getting a little longer. And, and maybe you know why, maybe you don't know why, but there's a reason for that, other than the seasons changing. Our Earth, the planet, is tilted at exactly 23.4 degrees. Now, you may be wondering, why do I need to know that? Well, you know me, I'm kind of a science geek. I, I like to know why things work the way they do. But the Earth's axis is tilted 23.4 degrees. Not 25 degrees, not 40 degrees, but exactly 23.4. And some scientists began to investigate what if the Earth was sitting on a perfectly 90-degree axis. In other words, not tilted, but perfectly straight. Did you know that probably the only place we'd be able to live and survive would be on the equator? 
that anything to the north and anything to the south would get progressively colder. It would be so cold that it couldn't even sustain life. So therefore, we would have a band of, of life around the center of the globe, and that would probably be one of the only places we could survive. Now, scientists explain this perfect 23.4 degree tilt that a, a large part of Mars broke off and hurled across time and space slams into the moon and then slams into the earth and hits the earth just right, glances off of it just enough that the earth tilts exactly 23.4 degrees. Now that sounds like a lot of coincidence, does it not? A lot of amazing circumstances that, that tilts the earth at just the right angle so that not only could it sustain life, but life could thrive and thrive on a large portion of the globe simply because the earth is tilted and it provides us seasons. And when you, right about the time you get tired of one season here in North Carolina, you have the beauty of another one coming on. Cosmic accident or something more. If you go down the cosmic accident path, let me tell you where it leads. It leads ultimately to you being a cosmic accident, right? So, so if, if life on earth is the, the byproduct of millions and billions of years of accidents, things mixing together at just the right time, and years and years and years and years and years going by, and then one day some kind of salamander climbs out of the soup in the mud, and over another million or billions of years becomes a donkey, an elephant, a giraffe, and yes, even a human being. Sounds like a whole lot of circumstantial cosmic accident happening there. Well, if you go down that path, ultimately, you're going to have a whole lot of problems. First of all, what is the point of life? What's the purpose of you being here? If, if, if you're just a cosmic accident, then what's the point? But, but, but if, we, if we start with the premise that there is an all-powerful creator who called the universe into existence by the very words of his mouth, and we start with him, everything from that point begins to make sense. And not only that, that God is actively involved in his creation all the way down to his prized creation, you. I hope that you've been able to see in Joseph's life, from him being sold by his brothers, to being carried 300 miles to Egypt, to being sold into Potiphar's household, to ending up in a prison, falsely accused, and now to the most second the second most powerful man on the face of the earth. Egypt has no contemporaries. This nation has so much power and so much wealth and so much military might. There's not another nation on earth that can lodge any war against Egypt. And a Hebrew boy who was sold into slavery, ended up a slave in Potiphar's house, and ended up in political prison, is now the governor of the most powerful nation on earth, second in command only to Pharaoh. How does that happen? Well, the providence of God, the purposes of God. Not a cosmic accident. Not a set of circumstances that just happened to work out in Joseph's favor, not at all. What we have seen is God moving step by step, moment by moment. And then we saw last week where Joseph is leaning into that work. He's recognizing that work. He's joining God in that work. And now God has brought about one of his main purposes and that Joseph would be in control at a time where the nation needed leadership. If you remember, Pharaoh has a dream. And Joseph recognizes, because he's already interpreted two other dreams, 
He recognizes that God's at work. God's doing something. God is up to something. So Joseph, Joseph leans into what God is doing and then interprets the dream for, for Pharaoh. And that dream was that there would be seven years of bountiful harvest, plentiful, that, that the fields are going to produce incredible crops. But then after those seven years, there's going to be seven years of, of incredible famine and incredible suffering on a global scale. And Joseph says, hey, Pharaoh, uh, you might want to put somebody in charge over this. And I'm your guy. So Pharaoh puts this Hebrew boy who had just come out of prison, who had just come out of political prison. If, if Pharaoh, Pharaoh being the nervous type of someone in his court, remember the baker and the cupbearer? This would have been the last guy that Pharaoh would have ever picked to be second in command. He follows Jehovah God. He doesn't worship the gods of Egypt. He worships Jehovah God. Plus, he comes from Canaan land. We don't know anything about him. Plus, he was a slave, sold by his brothers, and now I'm going to put him in charge? Does that make any sense at all? Of course not. It doesn't make any sense if you separate God's sovereignty and providence out of it. But if you notice what God is up to here, he's up to making sure that not only... Does the world have food? But specifically, these brothers that sold Joseph into slavery. Now, isn't that interesting? That these brothers did a horrible act and a horrible evil toward their own brother, contemplating killing him, hated him to the degree that they were going to commit murder. But yet God is providentially making sure that food is available to specifically Jacob's household. Well, up until now, we've seen God working in Joseph's life to bring about his will, to bring about his purposes. We've seen God bless. We've seen God move. We've also seen Joseph go through some terrible, terrible, difficult circumstances. Pain, hardship. It was not easy being a slave in Potiphar's house. It was not easy being a political prisoner. But now God has brought Joseph to a place of power. But there's an entirely different way that God is working in this narrative that you've got to see this morning. Matter of fact, we, we haven't even entertained the brothers, have we? We haven't even talked about the brothers since they sold him into slavery. We left the brothers back in Dothan. Uh, but today the brothers show back up. Today the brothers are going to be, are going to be center of what we're going to look at today. And what we've got to see is how God has also been working in their life. Chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. Now stop right there. Why is there grain for sale in Egypt? There is only one reason that there's grain for sale in Egypt. By the sovereignty of God and His will in Joseph's life being played out is the reason there is wheat in Egypt. You know why? Because if, if Joseph had not been in prison... If Joseph had not been sold by his brothers, if Joseph had not ended up in Potiphar's house, if Joseph had not ended up in that prison and interpreted the dreams for both the cup bearer and the baker, Pharaoh would have not known the interpretation of that dream. And how in the world could they have gathered food for seven years? You see, Joseph has been busy. Joseph not only got married to a daughter of a priest in Egypt, he's had two sons. He's also built silos and storage houses, and they've been gathering one-fifth of all the food that was produced, and they've been storing it back. And the world is hearing about what is going on in Egypt. Even before the famine hits, they already know that for some reason, Egypt is storing up food. Why is that? Well, it's because of a Hebrew boy that was able to interpret a dream that this is even happening. 
So why is there grain in Egypt? Because of the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. And notice what he says. He says, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? (laughs) I think that's an interesting phrase. So here's the brothers. They don't know what to do. Now we're getting into the famine. Now seven years of plenty have passed. Remember, these brothers don't know anything about the interpretation of the dream. We can assume that they had no idea that there were going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. So they've just been going on with life. They've been just tending the sheep and taking care of the farm. Life has just kind of gone on. And now famine is struck. And I would imagine that maybe one or two years into the famine has transpired. And it's getting bad, folks. Their stomachs are growling. There's no more food in the, in the bins. By the time we get to this point, probably 21 years have passed since the brothers came to Jacob with a bloody coat and said, look, Joseph is no more. He's been devoured by animals. It's been 21 years. 21 years where life has just moved on for these brothers. And now things have gotten difficult. The famine has struck Canaan. And Jacob says, why do you stand here looking at one another? The brothers didn't even know what to do. They had no solution. When you contrast that with the leadership of Joseph, it's an amazing thing. Here's Joseph leading the nation of Egypt while the brothers are standing around rubbing their hands, not having a clue what to do about the famine. Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. That we may live and not die. Now, Jacob doesn't understand the way you and I do. Because we know that there is a Messiah coming, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we know that Jesus is a descendant of the tribe of Judah. And Judah is one of these brothers, one of these sons of Jacob. And it is absolutely imperative that this family survive, not only for Jesus Christ the Messiah to come, but for the nation of Israel to become what God said it would become, a mighty nation. So when Jacob says this, he's speaking about it from the standpoint that we're going to die here if we don't get some food. But God sovereignly is also saying, the covenant promises that I've made I will keep, and these, this family will survive. And guess how they're going to survive? By the very brother they sold out and lied about. (laughs) Only God can work stuff out like that. Only God can bring about details like this. So... Jacob is going to send the brothers to Egypt. Notice verse 4. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared harm might happen to him. You know what's happened with the brothers while Joseph has been on his journey? You know what's happened? Benjamin has become the favorite. The other son of his precious wife, And Jacob moves from Joseph because Joseph is no more. Now Benjamin is the favorite son. And now Jacob, we see exactly the same thing again. That Jacob has not learned from his experience with Esau and his father Isaac. He's also not learned from the experience between the hatred that his brothers had for Joseph. Even though he doesn't know that his brothers were involved in it. He hasn't learned. Verse 5. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now get this picture. Here's the brothers making this long journey back to Egypt. And you know what they find? As they're journeying, more and more people, more caravans are going the same direction. And as I I would imagine, as they're traveling through some of these tribal areas, they're seeing death and destruction on every hand. 
They're seeing pasture lands that used to provide an incredible harvest are all dried up and gone. There's no food anywhere. People are starving to death. And if you can just picture in your mind these brothers as they're making their way back to Egypt, they're walking with countless other people who are absolutely destitute and have nothing else but what's in Egypt. And hopefully, hopefully, the Pharaoh will show them grace and they'll be able to buy some food. People are starving to death. Kids are crying. Teenagers are emancipated. They're, you can see their, their ribs hanging out of their chest. You can see the effects of the famine. And people are desperate. So they make their way down to Egypt. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. Irony, coincidence, you might think, that the brothers are now coming into Egypt. They have no idea that Joseph is in charge of the food distribution. And Joseph doesn't look like the Joseph they knew. He looks Egyptian. If you remember, when Pharaoh brought him out of the prison, they had him shaved and cleaned up. He now looks like, a, like, a, like an Egyptian. So they come into the city you got to get the brevity of this moment, the power of this moment. They come and they bow themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Does that sound familiar? It should. Because when Joseph was back home and he's dancing across the fields with his coat of many colors, he comes up to the brothers one day and says, Hey guys, i got to tell you about the dream I had. I had this wild dream where your sheaves came over and bowed down to my sheave. Isn't that cool, guys? They hated his guts for that. And they said, Joseph, you mean, you mean to tell me in all of your arrogance and your pride, you really believe one day that all of the brothers are going to bow down to you? Really? They are bowing their face to the ground. Just as Joseph saw it in the dream 21, 22 years earlier. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. In that moment, if you can, if you can I don't know how Joseph kept his composure through all of this. Can, can you imagine the waves of anger? Can you imagine the waves of, of, of maybe even revenge in his heart? Here is his brothers laying before him. And he's in control. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, and no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. man." So, so So the brothers are saying to Joseph, whom they don't know, look, we're not spies. We just come to buy land like all the other people who've come to buy land or come to buy food and come to buy supplies. We're just here to buy grain. We are all sons of one man. And then I want you to see this statement. We are honest men. You see, there's only one guy on the planet who knows the real story. Jacob doesn't know. Jacob thinks that Joseph's been killed by wild animals. He has he, he is, he is basically come to the conclusion, Jacob, that 
his son is no more. And he's grieved and he's moved on and made Benjamin the next favorite. The, the brothers have come to the conclusion that there's no way that Joseph could have ever survived being sold into slavery. If he's alive somewhere, he's probably a slave. But more than likely, he's not going to survive the famine. So we are honest men. Are they honest men? Can you imagine what Joseph is thinking in this moment? Honest men, huh? It's an amazing thing that we can fool ourselves, deceive ourselves, and even put ourselves in a position where we think that our sin is not even a big deal at all. And what's even more amazing is that as we go through life and we continue to be busy and we're engaged in all kinds of different activities, that we can be living in complete disobedience to God and yet believe that we are honest, upstanding, good Christian folk. It could be that these brothers really believe this about themselves. How could they? Plotting murder? lying to their father all these years, 21 years of living a lie, watching their father suffer and grieve under the pretense that Joseph was killed by wild animals, that they have watched this and let it go on. And there's a danger here for us to recognize that living in continual disobedience can bring with it this callousness and this coldness of heart. Paul talks about it, that you can become indifferent and cold and callous, your heart can become like, if you've ever burned your hand and you have that scar tissue grow over your hand, you can't even feel the, the you can't feel anything there anymore, right? The heart can become so calloused that we can be a person who, on the one hand, is murdering with the words of our mouth in complete disobedience to Christ, and yet on the other hand, say we are honest, good Christians. But Joseph knows better, and he's the only one that does. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land you've come to see. And they said, We are your servants, and are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. You know who that one is, right? Joseph. I, I can't imagine the hurt and the pain that Joseph felt in that moment. What do you mean there's one that is no more? I know what happened. Verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. Verse 15, by this you shall be tested. Now, why would Joseph do this? Why, why would Joseph put the boys, his brothers, through this? I'll tell you why. He's wanting to find out what's in their heart. He's wanting to find out, are these brothers the same brothers that sold me in Dothan? Has, has God been working in their life? You see, Joseph has seen the move of God. Joseph has seen the power of God's providence. He's seen it. He's lived it. He knows what it's like. He, he loves his father. He loves Jehovah God. He wants to see, are these brothers the same brothers that sold me out? So he said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put all of you in prison. And I'm going to send one of you to get your other brother to prove your words. So in other words, if there's a younger brother at home, you bring him here and that'll be the proof that you're telling me the truth and you're not a spy. If you can't produce that younger brother, then all of you are going to die. Verse 18, something happens in Joseph's heart. He changes the plan so slightly. 
So on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Notice that. I fear Elohim. An Egyptian governor names the name of Elohim. Now, Elohim, depending on the context, can mean some different things. It doesn't always mean Jehovah God, but in this instance, it does. This man is the only Jehovah worshiper in the whole nation of Egypt. That should have got their attention, but it didn't, and I think that's interesting. It doesn't seem as though that got their attention at all. He says, I fear God. If you are honest men, because you said you're honest, obviously, you know, who would ever doubt that, except for Joseph, let one of your brothers remain confined. Where you are in custody, let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household. And bring your youngest brother to me so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. So here's what Joseph does. He changes the plan. I'm only going to keep one of your brothers, and I'm going to take that brother, and I'm going to put him into a pit. More than likely, it's the exact same political prison that Joseph was in, because that's where they put political prisoners. He says, I'm I'm going to throw this brother into the pit, and you guys can go ahead and walk away. Now, later on in the the verses here, you, you notice something. That not only does Joseph give them the food that they came to purchase, but he takes their money and puts it back in their bags. And they don't realize this until they get out of the city. They open up their bags and they find money and they're freaking out. Well, now wait a minute. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? A brother in a pit while the other brothers get money. Does that seem familiar? Of course it is. That's exactly what played out in Joseph's life. Joseph was thrown into a pit. He could hear the Ishmaelite traders giving the money to his brothers, and the brothers walk away, and he's carried off into slavery. Joseph is taking the exact same thing that he went through, and he's putting his brothers through it to test their hearts. I think that's just amazing. Their brother is in prison now. They're all going to die. When they come back, if they come back without Benjamin... They're all going to be put to death. Now, since these are honest men, and they've already proven that right, they would never, ever be thinking, well, you know, we've got the food, we've got the money. Is Simeon all that bigger deal to us? Could they not have went back home to Jacob? Jacob, I hate to tell you this, Dad, but, man, something tragic happened. Man, this, this group of people jumped Simeon, beat him to death, and he's, he's no more. They could have had the money and the food. And Jacob would have been never the wiser. This is the test, folks. This is what Joseph is wanting to see. What is in the hearts of his brothers? But he gives a little indication of that before they even leave. Look at verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty. This is the first time we've seen any indication that the brothers recognize what they did all those years ago. Now, we don't know if the brothers have been struggling with guilt for 21 years. We don't know if they've put it out of their minds. We have no indication of that. Apparently, God didn't need for us to know that. But we have to speculate a little bit that that maybe through that life, just like in our life, that either A, we can become so busy that we don't even think about the things we've done wrong, And we do everything under the sun to cover our guilt, to cover our shame. We'll we'll go to the bottle. We'll go to the drugs. We'll go to the pornography. We'll go to Netflix if we need to. And we'll binge watch Netflix for three days in a row to just not deal with the reality of the guilt and the shame of the things we've done wrong. It's incredible the things that we'll do in our life to not have to deal with the guilt and the shame of past 
bad choices, past brokenness. 21 years of guilt and shame. Notice what they say, in truth. Notice that, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. I don't know if this is the first time they've discussed it. This could be the first time in 21 years that these brothers have openly talked about this. Because I don't know how it worked in your family growing up, but in my family growing up, if there's something going on in the family, some kind of mess, we had alcoholism, we had, we had mental issues in my dad's side of the family and my mom's side of the family, and if something's going on, we had a tendency to just sweep it under the table. The issue's there. It's, it's open for everyone to see, but, but if we don't talk about it, we don't think about it, we don't deal with it, then maybe it'll just go away. Does it ever go away? No. And we keep sweeping stuff under the table and sweeping stuff under the table till eventually there's so much stuff under the table that it can no longer be hidden anymore. And you know when it all comes out? You know when, you know when the stuff comes out? When all the past comes back in, in your life to haunt you and just to drive you insane, you know when that is. It's when stuff's going wrong in your household, when stuff's going wrong in your family, when you lost a job, when you didn't get the promotion, when there's strife in the marriage. It's amazing how Satan can go back into all of our past and bring all of that back to right now, just like it happened right now. It's just never been dealt with. Because by ignoring it, it always goes away, right? Yeah, that doesn't work for cancer. It doesn't work for heart disease. And it doesn't work for past shame, past guilt, and past disobedience. So here they are, guilty. Notice what they say, what they say here among themselves. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. We get a little insight into here what was going on on that day. Back when we read it, we didn't get all this insight. We, we assumed that Joseph would have been struggling and in pain and broken over this. But now the brothers tell us that, that Joseph, while he was in that pit, was crying out, begging for mercy, begging that they would not do this, begging that they would spare his life. For the whole time he was down in the pit, if you remember, the brothers are up around the fire. They're cooking and they're eating. And after they enjoy the money of the Ishmaelites, they watch their brother be carried off into slavery without a second thought. But in that moment, we find out that Joseph was begging for his life, and these brothers heard it. They heard his distress, but we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Wow. The brothers recognize that the reason we're in the mess we're in now is because we never dealt with this back there. The reason we're in the mess we're in right now, that we could all lose our lives if we don't get Benjamin, and you got to understand, Jacob is not going to give up Benjamin easily. He gave up Joseph, and what happens? Joseph is killed by animals. He's not going to give up Benjamin, so they know they're going to have a hard time getting Benjamin out of Jacob's household, and they know that all of their lives are on the line here. Isn't it amazing when the pressure is on, when things aren't going the way we thought they would turn out? That's when... God can speak really loudly into your life, and He'll say, you remember that back there? You and I never worked that out. And you're still living in the guilt and the shame of that back there today. You see, what we find out is that God has been working 
in the lives of these brothers for 21 years. 21 years. We don't know if they felt guilt about it. We don't know if they felt shame about it, but they certainly do now. And they recognize that, that God's sovereignty in this moment is bringing to bear on their life, and the circumstances of their situation is connected to their disobedience 21 years previous. And then Reuben steps up. And then wherever you find Reuben, you find Reuben covering himself. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? Remember what I said to you guys by there? This is not going to work out well, but you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. You see that word reckoning? It has the connotation of reconcile. In other words, the brothers recognize that what they did was evil and wrong. And now there's, there's a debt to be paid. And they believe they're going to be paying the debt for what they did to their brother, all the while not recognizing that that is their brother standing in front of them. I tell you, God can work out some amazing, amazing details. What they meant for evil, God has turned around for good. Turn over to John chapter 17. So God was at work in the life of these brothers. He was, he's been convicting them. He's been getting them to, to recognize what they've done. And, and for whatever reason, it's up till this moment. It's because of the pain, because of the pressure, because of whatever. It's all come to bear on them now. And they got some hard choices to make. So God's been at work. Well, God has been at work in your life as well. When we look at it from the Joseph side of the equation, God has been at work in your life and the details of your life, inviting you to join Him in the work that He's doing. Whatever work He's doing in this world, the Great Commission, making disciples, worshiping, He's inviting you to become part of that. And the gifts that He's given you in the life that you live, in the world that you live, in your little corner of the globe, God has been calling you to His purposes. He's saying, look, I'm already at work in your life. Come join me in that work. But there's another work that God's doing in your life that we need to realize. The disciples are stressed out because Jesus keeps talking about this crazy notion of leaving and going away. They've been with him for three and a half years. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teachings. They're prepared to go into Jerusalem and take it by force and let Jesus become the king and restore the nation of Israel. So they're really struggling with this idea that Jesus is going to leave and how are we going to continue the ministry, Jesus? How are we going to continue what you've done? How in the world are we ever going to remember all that you've done? John wrote in, the, in his gospel that if everything that Jesus done, it did, had been written down, there wouldn't be enough space for all the books that would be stacked up. So the disciples are freaking out. They're like, what are we going to do if you go away? No, Jesus, you're not going to go away. Trust me when I tell you, you're going to stick with us. And he keeps telling them, no, I'm going away. He says, but don't fear. I'm going to send the comforter the third part of the Godhead Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is going to come upon you. Notice what he's going to do. Chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, they would have argued with that point. How could it be that it's going to be a good thing that Jesus goes away? How could that possibly be good? It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict. Wow, that's really comforting, Jesus. Thank you for that. 
The first work of the Holy Spirit that's mentioned by Jesus himself is the work of conviction. Why is that? This is the work that God is doing in your life right now. As a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, one of the primary roles he's got in your life is to hold you accountable. The word convict has this legal connotation to it. It, It's as though the prosecutor in a court trial, that's kind of the connotation that Jesus is making with the Holy Spirit as his work of conviction in your life. Yes, he's a comforter. Yes, he brings comfort into your life. Yes, he illuminates your path. But one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is to take on the role of the prosecuting attorney. And the prosecuting attorney has as his job to point out where you have missed the mark. I don't like that any more than you do. But that's his role. His role is to convict. His role is to bring to our attention the fact where we have missed the mark and we miss the mark on a regular basis. Here's the thing. If we continue to ignore the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in that conviction ministry, we can become just like those brothers where 21 years passes and we just become calloused and cold to it. But not only the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer, but the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of the unbeliever. For those of you in the room who've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has been working on you as well. God's work in your life centers on the work of the Holy Spirit drawing you to the cross of Jesus Christ for you to repent, to ask forgiveness and seek forgiveness from God through what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf because there's no way you can work out the righteousness that God requires. So, so the Holy Spirit has been constantly putting in your path the reality of the truth of God's Word. And you have to ignore it. You have to walk by it. You have to reject it. You have to explain it away. You have to justify your own actions to continue in your own disobedience. Do you not? So this work of the Holy Spirit, listen, it's more, the work of the Holy Spirit is more than, than just feeling bad because you got caught. How many times have you seen some Hollywood star or musician who got caught in some, wait a minute, let me take it even further, megachurch pastor, let's go ahead and go there. How many times have you seen these guys and women on TV when they got caught and, and the whole, their whole secret life came out on TV for the world to see and they're on TV and there's tears pouring down their face and oh, they're, they're just horribly broken and horribly sorry and I don't know the heart. I don't, can't judge the heart, but I can tell you this. There's something about just feeling bad because you got caught because if you hadn't got caught, you'd have kept doing what you were doing. And that's the difference. See, the Holy Spirit's work's different than that. What the Holy Spirit's work is, is He shows you a holy, high, and mighty God who's going to absolutely, you're going to have to stand before one day. And He shows you the beauty of this holy God and the brokenness of your sin. And the difference between the two is where conviction does its best work. You see, it's not just a guilty conscience. Lost people have guilty consciences at times. Uh, it's probably not a good idea to let a cartoon grasshopper determine how you should live in the world. Let your conscience be your guide. You know, a cartoon grasshopper is probably not going to give you the best advice because your conscience can be seared, the Bible tells us. In your lost state, in your lost condition, 
you have no spiritual life in you. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that you're spiritually dead and therefore you can't discern spiritual things. And therefore, it's going to require the work of the Holy Spirit to bring you out of that pit that you are in. He's already working in your life. You failed it. You've sensed it, but you've rejected it over and over and over again. I want you to understand there is a danger in rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. There's no guarantee He's going to come back. There's no guarantee He's going to give you another chance. There's no guarantee... There's no guarantee that he's going to continue that work of conviction in your life, lost person. Follower of Christ, you, you put your faith in Jesus, right? And, and, and you receive the Holy Spirit. And somewhere along the journey, you just kind of got accustomed to disobedience. You, you just got used to it. I've been there. I know what that's like. And we'll fill our lives up with all kinds of things busyness. And all it's doing is distracting us from the real work of God in our life of removing the guilt and the shame and forgiving you. Wouldn't it be an awesome thing that you could move on with your life, not chained to your past? Wouldn't it be an awesome thing to be able to move on with your life without dragging the weight and the luggage of all the family mistakes that you've been bearing under for so many years? Wouldn't it be amazing for the prison door to swing open for you to finally walk out of that jail cell you've been sitting in for so long? You've been in there so long you don't even realize you're there anymore. Whether it be alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, whatever you're running to, you know you're running to something. You're running to something. And every time you run to that thing that's not God, you're not listening and recognizing the work that God is doing in your life calling you to repentance. Satan will keep you running for the rest of your life through things to things that will never deal with that guilt and that shame you're carrying around. Satan will have you run to things the rest of your life. But that carrot's always going to be just out of reach, isn't it? And then one day, you'll come to that place where life is over. You'll be filled with regret. It comes faster than you think it does. It'll be here before you know it. I think we need to lean into the work the Holy Spirit's doing in your life today. And that is a call to accept that what you're doing, what you're participating in is not honoring God. Agree agree with it. The first step is to agree with the Holy Spirit. And He's saying to you loudly through circumstances and all kinds of issues in your life, He's saying to you loudly, just agree with me that what you're doing is wrong. And then the work really begins. Father in heaven, you're awesome and mighty and patient. Oh, my goodness, you're patient. But, Father, it is a dangerous thing to reject the work of the Holy Spirit, whether lost or saved. It is a dangerous thing to just continue with our own action to cover up the work you're doing because there's no guarantee you're going to continue that work. So, Father, I pray that Right now, the Holy Spirit would really, really bear down on both lost and saved. That if there's some work you've been wanting to do, either in calling someone to salvation, to peace, to forgiveness, or to the one that's your child, your daughter, your son, that's not been living in ways that that you're pleased with. So have your will in your way. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 